Say your horse prayer. I don't know a horse prayer. That'd be a good time to think of one. Welcome back to Quaid in Full, the podcast with all the fox to give about actor Dennis Quaid and the only podcast to know that you're not sated until you are quaded. I am Jeb Lund, a gun in Act 1 whose auction gavel goes off in Act 3, and I'm here with this smudgy beige blot of what I can only guess is Sarah D. Bunting until she talks. <laughs> okay, so we're here to talk about 1998's TV movie, Everything That Rises, and uh, we can go into our pod business in a second, but before we do that, we're going to have to say that watched is probably a, an elastic term here. Yeah. Dimly sensed color form shapes. Um, the copy that we uh, viewed, that we screened, was on YouTube. It was a wretched transfer from someone's VHS or possibly an audio cassette. Hard to say. Yeah, well loved VHS, it would appear. Mm hmm. By somebody who preferred recording on EP. <laughs> yep. Yep, yep. It was tough. Uh, there's going to be a lot of uh, descriptions of things that are going on that we have to concede are probably just conjecture. Mm, yeah. <laughs> part. Th this really was more of a um, audio drama, like a yeah. um, Hallmark's Cormac McCarthy on the old radio waves. So, yeah. The Hallmark nod is important and we're going to come back to it. But before we do that, do we have any pod business? We don't. As far as I can tell, the Denissance has not reanimated. No. If it does. It got, has perhaps gotten the Earl treatment. I would be interested in seeing uh, David Cronenberg's Denissance. I just <laughs> sort of assumed that we would get multiple copies of Dennis Quaid, sort of maybe like a Dennis Quaid biomass, uh, <laughs> sort of like a mycology of Dennis Quaid, like maybe just sort of a, a great... Uh, a great fungus of quades waiting to erupt from the earth. I'm Cronenberg. If you're listening, also still alive. I haven't checked. Uh, call me. <laughs> but yes, we should. We have to talk about this movie. Everything that rises. Uh, shall I do the plot summary? Sure. Shall we begin by saying that if you think this is a Flannery O'Connor joint, it isn't. That is important. I checked. I couldn't really find any descriptions or reviews that would disclose that one way or another. I haven't read that Flannery O'Connor story, but I thought, well, this would make sense because it's Dennis Quaid's directorial debut, and maybe this was like a passion project that he could get on TV. But no, mm -mm. it's it's not. I think the story I'm thinking of is the one where that um, horrible woman and her even more horrible hat die on a bus. Spoiler. But while you do the plot summary, I'm going to look that up. Okay. Dennis Quaid is farmer Jim Clay in the year 19... In the state of... Who is behind on his bills. He has a seer and uncompromising demeanor. For instance, if you fall down a ravine on a horse he bought you and break its neck, he will make you kill it to teach you a lesson even if you're his son, Nathan. But Jim has problems. Bruce McGill is Alan Jameson, a creepy developer who needs Jim's easement to connect his new suburb of Ranchettes to the highway. And to make matters worse, Jim has money problems because he decided to drive Nathan into town on top of hay bales on top of the truck while also deciding to lean over to fiddle with the radio. One accident mere seconds later and Nathan is paralyzed from the waist down and Jim is running away from the reality of what he did. Thankfully, Garth is there, played by Harv, the angry father-in-law in Fargo, Presnell, 
and he teaches Nathan that he still has value by being able to rope steers on horseback. He sells his gun that belonged to historical loser piece of shit George Armstrong Custer and gives the money to the family just as Jim learns some lessons about compromise from his wife, Mayor Winningham, who missed him every day until she first met him. This is the most important thing about her. Eventually, Garth tells Jim that he loves him, and Jim tells Nathan that he loves him, and together, he and Nathan win a steer roping contest. The movie is now over. Yeah, I don't think you missed anything. Did you find contemporary reviews of this? I did. I only found two. I found one from Variety and one from E, and I think that they neatly, I think if you understand Variety as uh, an industry publication that is mainly there to make the industry look good and pulls its punches as much as it possibly can, this review makes sense. Okay. This is from Ray Richmond in Variety. Where everything that rises falls down somewhat is in the muted response of Nathan. Here is a kid who knows he'll never walk again, yet aside from a few tears, he shrugs it off almost as a temporary setback. The anger and bitterness are missing, and so is anything approaching a genuine depiction of the physical rigors of paralysis, the messiness of it, and the awkward response of friends, his school chums are understanding in a way that belies their years. The film also has to do some tap dancing to find a happy ending to this edgy puzzle, but a poignancy emerges nonetheless, one built on a gentleness and stoicism that keeps it in the family film fold. Quaid has wisely chosen a low-key approach and a simple premise for his first foreway into directing and despite some sappy vacations from reality, he largely succeeds. Meanwhile, in E, David Everett had this capsule review. If there is any entertainment value to be found in disastrous neurological trauma, this movie is determined to find it. In the television movie Everything That Rises, directed by star Dennis Quaid, the victim is a rancher's teenage son, Ryan Merriman, who is paralyzed in a truck crash. The film mercifully downplays the excruciating details of the character's handicap in favor of ambling along predictably to a feel-good finale. I think that's the whole scope of responses one could have to this movie. Maybe. Like, I'm trying to find value in it, or I'm not trying to find value in it. Or I'm not trying to find value in it, and then I did, which was my response. I don't think these reviews are off base. This is Quaid's directorial debut. I don't know what else he's directed. I didn't look that up. This seemed, I mean, again, you can't see what's happening. So shot comp is like not (laughs) something we're going to be talking about today. Like, oh, a, a clump of steel wool and a clump of undyed wool are talking. There's yelling. Neat. (laughs) Um, I don't know what it is about this, but these aren't people that you necessarily expect to see in this kind of movie. Like, I think this aired on TNT Mm -hmm. and and it's like, um, again, Hallmark meets Cormac McCarthy. And this is also sort of the end of a string of, um, Anne had donaissance projects for our boy that is like just one tooth show us a tooth why does everything have to be so dark gray in this fucking podcast about a roguish grin with legs but there was some dialogue here and some exchanges like i mean i i liked this it's i don't know if it's good but it was interesting like i was not bored i was interested in the sort of different things that I was seeing from what I expected to see or hear, really, (laughs) I guess. You're right. I mean, I I shouldn't have said that was the whole scope of responses to it. I'm going into it with a little negativity, um, and I'll get to that in a second. I I think you're right. Like, I was surprised by 
Dennis Quaid's performance. And I, I thought as a whole, the actors did a good job. But I think my antipathy comes from the fact that this was made by the Levinson Group. I can't remember the first name on the Levinson Group. It's not, it's not Barry. It's Larry. And I re- distinctly remember thinking, oh, Larry Bevinson, you mean? Did someone? Yeah. Anyway, go on. Well, the Larry Levinson Group was one of the three principal suppliers to the Hallmark Channel of original content up until about 2018 uh. or 2019 because he died. Uh, In fact, on my Hallmark podcast, we reviewed one of these movies, Portrait of Love, which starred Jason Logan Eccles Doring as a a man who, for my partner, David Roth, basically is the touchstone of people who are displaying too much authentic grief in a Hallmark movie. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, he has come up. Once I saw where this was coming from in terms of who was producing it, my brain automatically went to, oh, okay. I know what kind of movie this is. It's it's a Hallmark movie with something that they don't put in Hallmark movies anymore, which is the first 20 minutes where there's actual trauma, although they're getting back to that. But anyway, like the idea that we have of them as like being kind of quirky rom-coms or sort of like somber stories about families that have heartwarming moments in them and then proceed to an ending, that is very much here. So I was just sort of like waiting for the beats and feeling the beats and getting the overdetermined speech about the same part of the movie that I expect to get it. I agree with you though, like in terms of just watching the actors interact as with that sort of franchise of films, that's something you can always do in spite of the plot, but like the heartwarming finale and the, uh, the dad melts down and says, I love you, son. You know, you know, you're getting it. Sure. What I liked about this and I agree, I guess, on paper with the idea that this is not a um, verite reflection of the post-paralysis experience. But I think there were some genuine, well-observed moments in there, like Nathan slips in the bathtub and there's this awkward moment with his mom where she's like, do you think I never saw one before? Do you think I never saw yours before? Like The way that they talk to each other is not always what you expect. You know, she has a scene where she's like sassing this developer And she basically is like, look, we just don't, like, this is not a fun conversation for us to have. And then earlier, Jim, Dennis Quaid's character, has said, you know, we're not interested in this and we sort of have to be at odds with you, but thank you for making a respectful, non-lowball offer. Like, that's not something that you usually get in a plot like this. Yeah. Unfortunately, there's a certain laconic sarcasm that like all the characters kind of uniformly have that's a little bit sorkiny in that way. Mm-hmm. Everyone has the same understated snark. Like they're all okies or something. But then there's also the fact that like in the first act of the film, first of all there's the fake out that's not the catalyzing accident, but mm-hmm. then he ha- you know, his dad is like, "Well, you broke this horse, you you bought it." and hands him the rifle, and it's like, this is fucking dark for TNT in the late 90s, I think. And they're doing jokes, which whenever the the movie feels the the comfort to tell jokes in this sort of genre of film, usually you're getting something very light. You're getting like a, 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 you know, a slightly ironic character such as can exist in a sincere universe. But instead you have uh, Garth and Jim chiding nathan for his writing by saying things like nathan the idea is to be alive when you arrive cows tend to just mill around a dead boy 
it's not that steep. Hey, that hill's for water to go down. Earl's too good of a horse to kill, and I don't want your mother teased at the funeral she raised a fool's son. And then you've got their friend, Buck, who this uh, is basically an excuse to run some more credits over footage of a trail ride. But like if you've been on a trail ride, like in the American West, like if you get a guy who's a talker like this, that's it. Just like take good notes and let it wash over you. Here's clip two as Buck narrates what he thinks is a lucky story. Hmm. Maybe not. Should have killed me. In fact, now the doctor, he stood right at the foot of my bed and said, should have killed me. Said I was fortunate to have been an alcoholic for 30 years because what it did, it shrunk the uh, brain right away from the bone. Said if I hadn't put my time in on that bottle, then my whole brain would have ruptured. And then he winds up with, I'd have been an idiot if I'd have lived. Like, wow. (laughs) No, it's tremendous work by Mr. Loaf. Oh, yeah. The the writer here is a guy named Mark Sprague, who has two other credits. Yep. One is An Unfinished Life, and the other is Gross Anatomy, which was like a medical school sex farce from 1988 starring Daphne Zuniga and my birthday mate, Matthew Modine. Okay. Nice. This movie just had this um, dark humor energy to it that made the extremely predictable parts feel a little more earned, even though you know full well that they they weren't. Like mm-hmm. this roping bit at the end, and also just fucking Harv Presnell as the crusty, fond grandpa figure. That's all you have to do. Slot that guy in. Like, he saved half a season of Dawson's Creek. I would have thrown my TV out the window 17 <laughs> times if it weren't for Presnell. The man is a pro, and... uh this kid playing Nathan Ryan, uh, what's it's Merriman? You know, he's still working. He's been in a ton of stuff, most of which I haven't seen. But uh, he- here they are before the inciting incident, which actually takes a while to happen. It's like a third of the way in. But uh, here's uh, Harv and Ryan Merriman doing the Sorkin-y thing. You got a rope on in here, I'll kick your butt. Yes, sir. Is that what you told my dad when you were teaching him to rope? I didn't tell him anything. I just kicked his butt. Probably a good thing I like you better and my feet hurt worse than they used to, don't you think? Yeah. I don't know. There's absolutely no reason for anyone within the sound of my voice to seek this movie out and, quote, watch, really listen to it. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's one of those Ebert things. And by the way, in a scene later, someone calls Buck Ebert. Right. And it's basically a shorthand for the F word. Mm-hmm. But there is just something about this movie and the fact that I sort of had to be here that there were enough things that I wasn't expecting and mm-hmm. enough um, dialogue exchanges that read as this um, basic cable Ennis Del Mar styles. Mm-hmm. And then you sort of drop Dennis Quaid into the middle of this exercise in cursing free stoicism and it actually kind of played for me this is not bad or it's not boring i was drawn in to see what they were going to do with various beats that were going to be extremely predictable now Mm -hmm. i don't spend nearly as much time with uh hallmark content as you so my patient curiosity for this sort of um weird experiment might be greater than yours 
Well, actually, I did want to play a clip here that I think illustrates that. It comes about 45 minutes into the movie, which is generally when you get the Hallmark Fair, where somebody has to underline the thesis of the movie. It's the Mm -hmm. overdetermined moment. And what I think is interesting here is that it, by being an early kind of avatar of, of, you know, what we now think of as like Hallmarkery, is a little more intense in its subject matter and how it's discussing it. But the attempt at heartwarming family mutuality is still the kind of the, the way they're going to dig out from it. And I think it illustrates like how well and surprisingly competently like Dennis Quaid gets slotted into this. Mm. Let's go for it. I don't suppose you see how you're ever going to be with a girl like that one in the picture, huh? Maybe kiss her. Is that part of it? I don't know how you're going to do that either. There's a lot of things I don't know. For instance, I didn't know that I was going to wreck the truck and hurt you like I did. You're going to die someday. You're going to get old and die. That'd be the way to bet. I'm still going to be a cripple. Why don't we just try to do the next thing we have to do and see what comes up after that? Can we try So that for me is, as we're going into it, I'm like, oh, here it comes, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, and then they, they stick the landing and I think part of maybe, maybe just sort of like Dennis Quaid's inability to express certain complexities plays well with this kind of like emotionally constipated character. Like he, you know, the, the fact that this character can't shape the things and this is what, you know, he's humbly getting out. He can sell that and that's great. And so even though this borders on the kind of like homiletic, mm-hmm. right? And you're like, mm, that is that is heartwarming. It's like, but that's good heartwarming. You did it right. Yeah, no, they skimmed a bunch of sugar off the top of it. And this comes right after a scene that I just couldn't find a way to clip, but mm-hmm. epitomizes what I'm talking about with this movie, that they uh, have moved Nathan to a downstairs bedroom and uh, including all his stuff. And they found a, you know, picture of a naked lady with a tiger in there and there's just this like familial teasing and the kid is like well you know that it's a great shot of the tiger though and his parents are like yeah it is i mean i I just that's not something that you expect to see Mm -hmm. because it's not like it's not necessarily doing anything so to say like in a hallmark movie like there's no scenes that aren't sort of like telling you something that you need to know or see coming and that scene is set up for the scene that we just heard but then this scene, I don't know, I, I saw that coming and then the, you know, the fiddle starts and it's like, oh boy. I mean, do I buy <laughs> that he would have this direct an expression of guilt and shame mm-hmm. about his involvement in doing the middle of nowhere mountain time zone equivalent of texting while driving? N- no. Is it possible that Dennis Quaid was so busy with directorial duties that when he was acting, he didn't have time to overdo it and do baby voice. It is. I'll take it. 
Yeah. And I also appreciated that the sort of climactic, the boy can rope, he's got a future scene was like three minutes long. And then Dennis Quaid is like, hell yeah. And like, there's the grin, barely visible in this print. Mm -hmm. But I, I sensed it. It was there. And then credits. Thank you. So you're making me regret the uh, false binary I tried to shove the movie in when citing the contemporary reviews. And part of that is on my not remembering exactly what they said. I just remember it being sort of like <laughs> looking for the best. And then, no. Right. I will say that I think my mood was negatively affected by a Hallmark and then this and then watching the Parent Trap right after it diet where I was just getting too many of the same familiar and familial tonal signifiers. It was like, okay, I'm getting too much heartwarming and too many, you know. But I remember as I was watching it being surprised by how deftly they handled this kind of form that we don't see as much. Yeah. I mean, maybe it's just because I expected nothing. Maybe it's because I could barely see anything. Maybe it's because mm. prepare the bell. We also watched Cuffs this week and... <laughs> why oh why uh, i mean th this is this is the life we've chosen um there's no reason for me to recommend it but it's almost a shame that the waters of quaid story are going to close over this because it was weirdly good and compelling Mm -hmm. possibly for reasons of build and not the actual story. Also, there's like, can we talk about the barroom brawl just for a second? I thought you wanted to talk about Mr. Loaf, but go on. No, I'd like to talk about the barroom brawl, which just, why is that even in there? Yeah. <laughs> Everyone involved, it's like, we're going to arm wrestle. No, you're going to arm wrestle the developer. Nope, you're going to pop him in the face. And then the next thing you know, Dennis Quaid is being hoisted up like he's in swingers rolled down the bar like Rocky in Superman 2 and then everybody is just like justifiable fisticuffs you can actually hear people <laughs> saying the word rhubarb I fucking love it <laughs> and then the sheriff comes in and is like well you know we'll get to it but there's no reason to have a barroom brawl in here unless Dennis Quaid went to the network and was like I'd like to see if I can successfully direct an all hands fight <laughs> It's a fucking weird movie, this thing. Very weird. We'll put a number on it. I feel like we're dancing around it. Like we're both like, well, I don't want to make it too high. Is this going to be high? I don't want to do it. What is it? Uh, it's an eight and a half. Interesting. Yeah. I talked myself over the course of this up to a seven. <laughs> wow. Okay. But I was going to do coming in like five and a half, six, because, you know, if it were just on the Hallmark scale, it would be above 50. Just on that kind of like, mm -hmm. all right, I'm used to TV movie. I'm used to that milieu. Yeah, this is better than So on the Hallmark scale, which food is this? Which food would this be on the Hallmark scale? There are some solids. Okay. Uh, but like between that and, uh, you know, and a juicy taco, because there are definitely some tasty bits, like, you know, a surprise use of what is within the quaidity of, mm -hmm. uh, of the, the Dennis Quaid acting experience. I came in at an eight and a half and was prepared to revise it down if I were sufficiently shamed by points that you made. And um, you made good points, but I was not shamed. I think this is actually kind of a little gem that, that we got, especially after the rest of the week in Quaid content for us. So yeah, eight and a half. 
No, you were right. You win. You win this one. (laughs) And coming off the victory for Sarah, it's time for my favorite news segment on this podcast. Ask a horse girl. Oh, no. Sarah, I want to talk about the form of young Nathan. When you were watching that, I mean, take me behind the process. Is he right in the saddle? I mean, where is his, is his weight distribution okay? Is he, is that thing cantering right? I don't know. (laughs) Well, I'm going to quit the podcast after this because Ask a Horse Girl is um, offensive. (laughs) Just kidding. Um, I had no notes on that, but I wasn't, uh, I wasn't a Western writer, Mm-hmm. I know enough about it to know that, and I've made a note about this, that I was like, this makes sense to get him back in the saddle, because mm-hmm. so much more of Western sort of communicating with the horse in Western writing is about reins and neck touch and stuff like that, versus dressage, mm-hmm. which is more leg-driven. In terms of everyone else's seat and shit mm-hmm. like that, like it was too hard to see. <laughs> So (laughs) can't really say Uh, DQ sits a horse better than Luke Perry, low bar, but he clears it easily. There were a number of scenes, not just the one where Earl gets uh, mortally injured, but then scenes right after that where they're riding horses down these like 40 degree inclines that I just couldn't watch. Mm -hmm. I couldn't watch a person doing that. Like I have a bad ankle and it just is too scary. Yeah, no, I, I wasn't asking to, to poke fun. I was just, I was, as I was watching it, I was like, you know, Sarah, I, I wonder if she's going to come in to this part hot. You know, like I, <laughs> I have some horse notes, <laughs> you know, and then you just hear like a snap and then a parchment starts unfurling, that kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> so, I I, you know, could have been uh, coming. Lights, please. Slide one. Um, no, I couldn't <laughs> actually see well enough to bore everyone to near death to Earl levels with, with this segment so uh you're welcome listeners jeb uh overruled me without my even knowing and you had to sit through horsey bullshit anyway <laughs> corn grats yeah, yeah i i gotta say like I, we didn't really underline this enough it is really hard to see people or expressions and like there were some scenes i actually paused the screen and i i was watching it and i was like what does this remind me of and what it reminded me of was the scene in Star Trek One, the first movie, mm-hmm. where the transporters aren't working yet and they try to beam over the new science officer, and then you get to hear, Oh no, they're forming. As somebody rematerializes as this like disaggregated personhood and then like dies on the transporter pad. And I was like, Yeah, that's what's happening to everybody. Yeah. <laughs> oh no, that is a real meatloaf. No. Yeah. Oh. Oh my god. Oh fuck, meatloaf is in this. Yeah. That's right. I couldn't even tell it was him. That's why I keep saying Mr. Loaf. I'm hearing loaf, loaf like it rhymes with nose. Oh, okay. Well, damn it. We missed so many opportunities. It's weird. It's weird. You're like, oh yeah, meatloaf is in this. I mean, you did it. I did it. Yeah. I wrote it down. I saw his name in the credits and then I just sort of forgot about it. And you can't see anything. (laughs) I had a whole clip of him rambling on about his booze shrunken brain. Right. That's him. That's Mr. Loaf. Oh, Jesus. Well, 
yeah. he usually bumps the shit out of me. So that's another credit to this movie. Maybe I should bump it up to a nine. Like if I don't even know <laughs> that's meatloaf. Uh, I would love, I mean, listen, we'll I'm save so it for the loaf cast. In in the meantime, we have to do the Quaid qua Quaid. We have to quantify the, uh, the Quaidity content that we saw in this. Where okay. are you seeing DQ within the, the DQ oeuvre? oeuvre? This is a better use of Quaid's, like, trying to, Quaid's, like, in need of Metamucil, sometimes baby voice thing. He, instead of doing baby voice this time, does sling blade voice, which I'm not a huge fan of, but he almost gets away with it here. This doesn't feel overthought in the way that some of his more doer roles that we've been talking about lately feels. You do see a grin a couple times. He obviously does have some roguish something that, you know, it's basic cable, so we're not really going to see it, but, and it happened before the events of the movie, but it's present. I think he cast himself correctly. I don't know how we should add or like mitigate or aggravate his directing with this ranking. I don't think we should, because again, hard to see. It's mm-hmm. like a rotoscope became sentient and killed everybody. So, um, <laughs> I mean, he's in it a lot. Uh, I think this is, ooh, fuck, I don't know, seven and a half. Man, God, I should have just blurted it. Um, <laughs> well, talk us through your process and see, maybe you, maybe you end up somewhere else. No, I mean, I, you, you pretty much went through my process. Um, I did have a sling blade thought earlier um, because <laughs> uh-huh. of you referencing it. And, you know, he does have that, you know, reckon I, you, mm-hmm. you gotta reckon uh, it's time yeah. to execute a horse. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and <laughs> yeah, it's a heartwarming movie to start with this much horse execution, really. But yeah, just, I mean, he, I don't know if it was because he was the director, he was willing to trust himself quieter and other directors were like, no, I want the quiet bigger. Yeah, happens. Yeah, maybe. It's an unexpectedly mannerly performance for him and mm-hmm. that, that beautifully fits the material and capitalizes on kind of ways that he's tried to play these roles before and I think really gets as, uh, as close to, you know, the tone as, as you could want from him. And then, as you say, at the end, you know, you, you get some smirks and, and uh, you're used to the, the Dennis Quaid, like, I, I love you, you know, kind of like grin and, and heart melting moment with an ingenue. And in this case, it's, it's with the sun and it works there, too. I mean, it's not perfect. I'm, I'm struggling to really encapsulate how I felt on seeing him grin and go, you know, I, I love you, boy. But um, it got there amply and, and admirably, if not perfectly. Yeah. Well, and he, I mean, I think those tears were real and kind of ugly, which was just one more thing that, you know, huh. If I'm sort of looking at a movie like this and being like, oh, which is how I felt about that horse killing also that it was like, Jesus, they really think nobody's going to watch this shit. So they're just going to go there. Yeah. All right. Move over, Michael Cimino. Like, who's the, who's the protagonist again here? So you're also at a seven and a half? Yeah, yeah. That was like, God damn it. I hate it when you do that. So, well, like, then don't make me go first, dick. Mm, fine. And that's Ask a Horse Girl. Next time on Quaid in Full, The Parent Trap. In the meantime, get off your high horse and tumble oh. on over to check out the show notes and follow the podcast on Twitter at Quaid in Full Pod and get even more content at our Patreon page, patreon.com slash Quaid in Full. 
Wait in Full is hosted by Sarah D. Bunting and Jeb Lund and edited by Jeb Lund. That's me. Don't subscribe yet? Slide on down the bar and go sign up wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review Quaid in Full so other people can find it. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Done.